I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, folks. Jeremy here of the Sick Boy Podcast. And before we throw to this week's episode, I've got a big, big, big announcement. Actually, I have two big announcements. The first one, which is like super big, is that we here at Sick Boy are doing a live show. It's true. Um, regardless of the fact that COVID has has swept across the planet and has um, effectively ruined live shows, live events, and and large group gatherings for the foreseeable future, uh, we're we're just going to go right ahead and do a live show anyway. And here's the loophole we found: is that it doesn't matter where the fuck you live. Each and every one of you who are currently listening to this right now have the opportunity to attend this live show because it's taking place in the comfort of your own gosh darn living room. We're doing it through a service called Crowdcast. We actually did this a couple of weeks ago uh, exclusively for our patrons. And let me tell you right now, it was the most incredible time. Uh, I've been sinking my teeth into broadcasting software. And so we've turned this into like a really interactive, fun, live podcast recording. Uh, we are going to have a really amazing guest lined up. Uh, it's fully interactive. So there's a, there's a whole Q and a section that's like fucking popping off the entire time. There's polls that you can partake in. Uh, who knows? We might be giving away some merch. Uh, it's going to be a really, really lovely time. We cannot wait to see you. Uh, and if you want to attend the show, which I, I highly, highly suggest you do. If you've been to our live shows in the past before, you know how much fun they are. If you've never been to a live show because we haven't come to your city yet and you've always wanted to, this is your opportunity. So if you want to uh, be a part of this really fun, unique experience, you can go to www.sickboypodcast.com slash shows and get all the information for the tickets there. Oh, I should probably tell you when the fuck the event is. It's taking place in a couple of weeks. It's going to be on July 8th, uh, the evening of July 8th. So again, for more details, more info, go to sickboypodcast.com slash shows. And then the second announcement, again, tying into this whole theme of live events, um, Lawn Summer Nights is a organization that holds an annual event across the country every single year where they hit the lawn uh, they they hit the the lawn bowling pitches or or the lawn bowling courts I don't know what you call them uh, to uh, with teams to raise money for cystic fibrosis uh, it's a huge tournament that takes place um, from coast to coast now, unfortunately, uh, with COVID, uh, these lawn bowling uh, courts or, or pitches or fields are no longer available uh, for us to use. And so Lawn Summer Nights put their heads together and they thought, what would be just as fun as getting teams together to play lawn bowling and raise money? Well, what do you know about 
Trivia Nights, folks. Uh, that's right. Lawn Summer Nights is continuing to raise money for cystic fibrosis this year, and they are hitting the uh, they're hitting the the pubs or or potentially your living rooms uh, with a trivia night tournament. Uh, registration opens on June 22nd, which is actually today. Uh, registration fees are $100 per team, uh, teams of four, and only the captain actually has to register. And this is taking place again, coast to coast, 14 cities are participating here. We've got Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, Regina, Chatham, London, Brantford, Niagara, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Charlottetown, and of course, Halifax. Um, some of these events will be taking place in person depending on the location. So like I said, they might be taking place at a pub. Um, uh, but depending on the, the COVID situation where you live, it might just be taking place online. Uh, events are being held throughout July in each city and nationals, which is the top teams from all the cities is going to take place on July 30th. Teams can get together with teammates at home if allowed uh, and tune in together to watch the live stream, enter scores, engage with one another, etc., etc. It's going to be a really, really fun time. And like every single year, there's top prizes for there's prizes for top fundraisers. There's extra points being given out for top fundraisers. Uh, there's prizes for creative teams. And of course, uh, the tournament winners will also receive a really sweet prize. So I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Registration opens today. Go out, register your team, um, solve some trivia, all in the name of raising money to help find a cure for the disease that very likely could end my life one day. Um, and hey, you know what? Now that we're talking about live shows and, and live events, uh, our live show on July 8th is actually going to be raising money for Lawn Summer Nights. How about that? Ba-boom. All right, I've talked enough. Uh, we love each and every one of you. We hope you're all staying safe, and I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's a doozy. We speak to our new friend, Diane, who is blind, who also works for the CNIB uh, Guide Dogs. Uh, she's the director for the Guide Dogs, Dogs program there, and I learned, we've learned so much about how guide dogs work and the process of, of how, how they end up uh, finding homes. Uh, really, really fun episode. Hope you enjoy it. We love you all, and we will see you on the other side. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Diane. She's blind and has a guide dog. Let's talk about it. And, all right, we're, uh, we're good to dive in here. Um... Cool. Can I just start by asking that right away? Because now it's now I know. Well, that I'm, I, I mean, maybe we should give a little bit of context first, Brian, uh, well, and then and that. then start with it. Uh, sure, go ahead. Uh, we're sitting here today with uh, our lovely guest Diane, um, who the only thing I know about Diane is that she is blind. I guess is that is that the correct way to say you, it? Y- yeah, yeah. So you, yeah, Brian and Taylor, you she guys are coming in without person. With much pre. Without much previous knowledge, but yes, uh, Diane is blind. Go on, Brian. Yeah, and so, and so, so the thing that I said is right before we recorded, I was like, I actually really want to know because we were talking about we heard we could hear um, Bigby walking in the back of of uh, Jer's video. Um, we couldn't see him, but we could hear his 
his nails kind of click clacking on the floor ever so gently. It was it was very quiet, but you could you could tell that he was there. And um, and when we were talking about that, I, I had the thought: I wonder if Diane hears that really well because she is blind. So I have heard that blind people have this like heightened set. I guess their other senses are heightened to compensate. Diane, I, I literally have no idea or background of what your what your your uh, situation is like. But I was like, I wonder if Diane can hear that better. And you said, No, that's a myth. So can you can you explain that a little bit for me? Because I've always thought that you would have had a heightened sense of hearing, for example. Um, yeah. So in fact, uh, we physically hear exactly the same as anybody else with the same physical capability of hearing. The, the difference is, is that we use our senses differently. So it's not heightened in any way. It's mm. just used in a way. For example, if you and I were physically capable of hearing the same, and we were standing at a street corner together, I would hear a car coming before you did. Um, not because you actually don't hear it. You're just not using that part of your brain. Mm, you're oh, too right. focused on looking at it. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for the car because that's what, what you do. <laughs> um, and your brain is not thinking about listening. But we actually do hear things the same. So it's so it's not heightened uh, in any way. Although I, I did convince my children when they were younger, that um, I could see like X-ray vision through walls and ceilings, <laughs> and I could and I could hear much better, so they had to behave better. Okay, uh. Wait, so this is like this is like the perfect segue into understanding your story better because, um, like, I I guess um, I would also wonder with that specific question that I ask, would it be different if you were born with no vision, or if you mm. you know if you lost your vision at some point? Um, would that affect the way that you, um, I guess, hear things, whether it's if it's not physically because you're hearing um, the sounds louder or any any more better? It, is that part of your brain like not primed to hear as like the primary sense if you lose your um, vision? Does that make sense? That is, a, that is an excellent question. And I don't have the answer okay. because <laughs> I wasn't born. I wasn't born blind. So I, I do not know. Okay. Um, actually, I, I would probably yeah. theor. I would I, if you now since we so now since none of us have the answer, we can just go ahead and speculate. Bro, um, I love this. <laughs> we'll, we'll make one up because we can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would exactly. have to imagine that it would be that it that it would be that whether you whether you are whether you are born with no vision or whether you lose your vision somewhere in your life that that it is it 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 is kind of tapping into a resource that's. It, for both scenarios, it would be tapping into a resource that is always there, but not always um, necessary. Like you said, Diane, we're mm-hmm. going to we're going to more intuitively look first and hear and hear second for the car that's coming. Whereas, you know, there's obviously a, there, I'm assuming there's probably a tuning period. Um, you know, if you lose your vision somewhere along the line and you're not mm-hmm. born with no vision, there's pro- you know there's a process. I can liken this. I can liken this to um, um, when I when I get, ride my bike, um, and when you use when you start using pedals that you clip into and that you clip your feet into. Mm-hmm. When you when you start pedaling, when you start biking with pedals that you clip into, you always you're it's inevitable to come to a red light or a stop sign and to absolutely forget that you have to move your foot in a certain way and clip your foot out. 
and you forget that and you come to the stop sign and you fall on your ass because you've forgotten to take your feet out of something that they are held into. Mm-hmm. I watched my dad and my dad is now learning to bike and I've watched him now struggle immensely with this to end to a point where it becomes completely second nature that it's, it is not a thought. I don't think I have to clip my foot out now. It just is the thing that happens automatically as I approach a stop when I'm biking, as I must assume that it must, that it would be for someone like you who's lost your vision somewhere along the line. And it only, it, you acquire that ability over time by honing it and it becoming uh, yeah. better over time to go, I'm going to, I'm really, it's second nature to know where that car is by sound rather than your <laughs> sight. Yeah, it, it takes years of training and experience. I tell people all the time, you know, the, the guide dog didn't fall out of the sky wearing a harness and I just grabbed it and we walked away and into <laughs> the sunset and lived happily ever after, right? That's, that's not how that works. And it's one of the reasons why in the in in the community of people with disabilities in, in as a whole, we tend to say to people, you know, just because you put a blindfold on or close your eyes does not give you the exact experience of what it's like to be blind. Because although it can be entertaining for those of us that are blind to be sitting next to you and laugh our asses <laughs> off while you, you know, have, you know, mashed potatoes all over your face, um, <laughs> it's it is something that we have learned how to do over that time frame and, and come up with adaptations, mm. either being taught through vision rehabilitation or or just our own experiences. So, yeah, it does. And it does become second nature. And, and I totally get I I'm a cyclist and I clip in. And the first time I clipped in, I was terrified that I was going to be in an accident and that I couldn't pull my feet. And I I didn't actually clip in properly on one side because I had that very terrifying thought. What if I forget yeah. <laughs> now when I don't clip in, there's something wrong. Absolutely. So, so wait, so a minute. How, well, how does, <laughs> how does a, how does a blind person uh, uh, clip into a bike and ride, ride a bike? That's what I was going to ask. And I was going to say like, is there, is that stigma that my brain was immediately like, Oh wait, what do you mean you bike? I, I mean, I, I'm not going to fucking lie. I, when you said that, I was like, get the fuck, get the fuck out of here. What you, you mean before you lost your vision when you were biking, right? <laughs> yeah, no. So I, yeah, so I'm total, I have total um, total sight loss. I am totally blind. There's no light perception. There's no shadow. Um, you know, I always tell people if I look at the sun um, in, at the, and I turn my head the right way and all the planets are aligned and the sun's in the right, at the right angle, I might see a flash. That's about as much mm, sight that I have. So it's like total nothing. And um, I I have a tandem. So I have pilots that I ride with and mm, um that's so and, awesome mm-hmm. yeah and at home I have um I, I don't know what how much you guys can see of the background but you might actually see oh, my yeah. bike in the background oh yeah I'm there sitting, it is yeah. I have a smart trainer and I I train uh, yeah I train on my smart trainer do you use Zwift I do not Zwift is not accessible to blind people right. so if Zwift is listening please make your app <laughs> accessible oh please, um, I use I use Sufferfest 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I've used Sufferfest. They're uh, they're, yeah. they're pretty hardcore. I love I, I love them. I I used them for a few months. Yeah, ago. well, so the we'll, name right, Suffer. We'll tag yeah. we'll tag yeah. them in the uh, in the show notes and see Absolutely. if we can if we can get them to to up their accessibility there with the. With that's actually the, uh, the that's a really interesting conversation. That's a really I mean obviously I you know now I could nerd out on cycling as much as 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 much as you guys <laughs> want, which I know you're shaking your head and you don't want me to nerd out on cycling, <laughs> but it is a really interesting thing in the way that in the way that. You know, sometimes I remember this conversation we were having, um, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, and uh, we were talking to a woman who lives with arthrogryposis. I hope I'm recalling the name of that right. Yeah, you said that right. And um, and we were talking about things like um, we got into the nature of of technology and how how there are features in technology that, that I've only ever looked at as cool. But then, when I look at them at from the from the perception or from the perspective of somebody who's living with some type of disability, they I look at them as essential. So, uh-huh. in terms of you know voice act, being able to you know if you've got something speech to something, text, it's speech to text things yeah. that where you can't use your hands and you can use like voice assistance and the massive accessibility that voice well, it was like right, right before we started recording diane had a call come in and i could hear her phone going off but i also heard your phone i i believe i'm assuming it was like telling you who was calling yeah. you mm-hmm. was it not yeah. yeah yeah it was it was my iphone and iphone um has built-in accessibility features so um you don't have to purchase any extra things um apple products do come built in and so it was mm. it's called voiceover and um See, now I can geek out about technology and accessibility. <laughs> so so if you think about the life of someone who is blind or, or um, significantly partially sighted, um, we don't drive, obviously, which, you know, please Google car, come to me soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but the so I don't you know, it's hard for me to get around to do different things. So for for the last few years. My spin classes are in my house. I have two iPhones. I've got one that's set up on a stand that I'm on um, Google Meets or Skype or whatever it is of the day with my coach who's sitting in his basement. Um, And there's like five or six of us or seven of us. And we're all on camera. I get on my bike, which is on my smart trainer, which is then Bluetooth to my other Apple, uh, my other iPhone, which is giving me accessible information through my app. I've got my mm. heart rate monitor going. I've got my feet clipped in and my coach will say, I want you to pedal for two minutes at uh, you're going to sprint. I want your cadence to be a minimum of 115. And, you know, and then I want you to, and, and he's giving us instructions and I can do the entire class using that accessible technology to do a spin class. And is that giving you, is that giving you, and so is part of that giving you the feedback that you are indeed at that cadence? Is it saying cadence yeah. one fifteen? You know, yeah, yeah. Pa- power at this level, whatever your heart rate. Yeah, at this I level. just I have it set up next to me. I turn up the volume so I can hear it. I got my headphones on so I can can interact with my coach. And as I'm spinning, I, it gives me. I set it to give me um, intervals of instruction. So as I'm spinning, it'll tell me, you know, your cadence has changed. So you know, say one hundred. 110, right. 150, and it just calls it out. So if I start to slow down, it'll call out that I'm slowing down. So I know I got to pick it up again. So, so I can participate fully. So that is in, that is built into, um, that is built into Sufferfest. So that, that's a feature of Sufferfest that they will give you that. It's, it, yeah. It's the same as everybody else's Sufferfest 
they see the same thing. It's just my voiceover right, on okay. my iPhone is reading it out loud to okay, me, okay, as okay. opposed to looking at it. Right. So yeah. I, I there there's a whole like list of accomplishments that uh, that that I I want to like really kind of dive into with you, Diane, and, and, and we're kind of, we're only really just like scratching the surface of it, of it right now. Um, and, and I, I typically, I don't, I don't like to do this, but just for the, just for the sake of, of us getting to know your backstory a little more, can we, can we rewind a little? Cause I'm, I'm really curious to know you, you, you had said how you weren't born blind. So yeah. you, you have, you have become blind at some point in your life. Can you walk us through your experience of, getting to that point in your life, when did that happen and, and, and how, how did that come to be? Sure. Um, so I, I was born with an eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa. There is no spelling test, so don't panic. Um, <laughs> it's known as RP for short. So RP is, is fairly common, uh, condition. Um, it is genetic. And in my particular case, it's from a recessive gene. I, None of my family members have it. I am the only person that has it. I think I was an oops somewhere along the way. Um, mm-hmm. I often tease my dad that maybe there is a milkman that has a sight loss problem that's running around Scotland somewhere. Because, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> he, used to say, he used to say to me, you wait till you have kids of your own. And I'd say, yeah, you too, dad. Um, <laughs> so, there's, no, there's no history of this in the family. So it's recessive. Um, and when I was five years old, uh, I dropped a bright uh, pink comb on a dark, uh, dark green carpet. And I bent down to pick it up. And I was looking straight ahead, but feeling the ground. And my mom saw that was the first indication that she realized that I had a sight loss problem. Although I had been losing my sight right from when I was young. But when you're young, you don't know, like, right. Is is this a case of like, is this a case of in, in that in that moment? Is this a case of color blindness like is like was that the way it started or is it no it it wasn't colorblind it's just so rp is um you end up with tunnel vision or patches it's got different ways of manifesting itself but at the time that this happened i mean it had been happening all along but it was that moment in time that i had as a child because i didn't know any different I had adapted my own lifestyle, my own life and the things that I did to the fact that I was losing sight. And my, you know, my mother used to say, oh, you'll trip over a matchstick. And I would reach for things. I was always clumsy. My mother thought I was just a clumsy kid. So, so she, you know, she always just kind of said, I don't understand why, why are you so klutzy and you're tripping all the time and you're falling. And, and that moment was when she saw me do that. And then she started watching me and realizing that, I had stopped looking at things and I had started feeling things Mm, and it was just a moment for her. And then she took me in and I was diagnosed and I was considered partially sighted at that time at five. And when I was 10, I had lost enough sight uh, that they considered me legally blind at the time, which I'm not not sure. I was 10. 10. Yeah. So so it was just like a slow process where you, where it just, it, 
it gradually just started to d- dissipate yeah, your your ability to see. And, yeah. and it, is that is that pretty common? Is that pretty common with re- yeah. retinitis RP? pigmentosis? Very R- yeah, right, R- nice. Look at you. Yes. yes. I, ha- yeah. Yeah, I have it. I have it written out in front of me here. So don't, <laughs> don't fucking don't congratulate. We had, um, but we had we had uh, Victor Mifsud on the podcast, who is the blind biopacker biohacker who had retinitis pigmentosa, and um, yeah. when we had him on, he had this uh, like cardboard. Um, kind of like eyeglasses with pinholes poked yeah. in it, and yeah. and that was to to kind of. I know you said at the beginning that like you can't just put a blindfold on and simulate what it's like to be blind, but it was very yeah. much like simulate that idea of like tunnel vision. So there was the pinholes, yeah. and all you can see is like a very small mm. bit of light coming through. And mm. and I can understand why yeah. you wouldn't be able to find a pink hairbrush on a on a green carpet or or like tripping over I... things because there's like no peripheral vision. Exactly. I mean, it's very very yeah. very yeah. directed. Yeah, that's how I felt the first time that I smoked marijuana. <laughs> I was like, I can only see what is directly in front of me, and nothing else. <laughs> um, uh, Diane, so you 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 were experiencing this at a pretty early age, and yeah. th- did this did this affect? Like, did you have to go to? a specific school for, for blind children or like, like how did that, how did that start to affect uh, like the, your day to day as a, as a kid and like your, your childhood? Yeah. So, you know, when I, because I was partially sighted at the beginning and, you know, not into the realm of being legally blind, which I'm not sure what it means to be illegally blind. (laughs) They call it legally blind, which is 10% sight or less. Um, but I stayed in the school, but they had to, you know, put me in the front of the the class so that I could be up close up to the board. And, um, you know, I got uh, the teacher helped me with letting me write things in larger print. And I had special pens and that kind of thing. Um, And then when I was uh, a little bit older, we moved from one area. uh, I lived in Montreal. I lived from I lived in LaSalle. We moved from LaSalle to Pancor and I started a new school. And at that time, the teacher at that school said, you know, there's a bus that comes through that can pick her up and take her to the school for kids with with disabilities. And she can, you know, go hang with the blind kids. And um, so my mom came home and (laughs) said, you know, you can go to this school where there's other kids that have disabilities. And I said, yeah, but I don't have a disability. I'm just me. So my mom Mm. took that and went back to the school and said, yeah, she'll come to your school and you will accommodate. And this is back I, 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 this is going to age me so badly. Um, this was when the whole concept of integration first came in. And, um, so I was like the first integrated kid in my school with a disability. There was no other kids with disabilities. I mean, they probably had them. We just didn't know, right. There was probably kids with learning disabilities and all sorts of things that they were just hiding them or they didn't know. And so, Mm. uh, but I was the, (laughs) I was the only openly disabled person in the school. <laughs> and um, so I never went to a school for kids with disabilities ever. I was just always in, and so, in the regular classroom. So how, did, and so how did that interplay with, I mean, whenever somebody is the first or the only known, I, got to, mm. I have to imagine that there's that, that at least some po- segment of the population that you're going to school with, you know, starts to look at you as other or treat you as other. And what was the, Oh yeah. What, I, I was severely bullied in school. Um, at the same time, I had friends that were bigger than the bullies. And so <laughs> it was 
I had friends. <laughs> I had one friend that was a lovely, lovely friend of mine. Uh, Gwyneth was her name, and and her and I hung out together, and uh, our friends started calling her Fido, my guy, my guard dog, because she would literally anybody came anywhere near me in an you know in a negative way, and she would step in and basically you know let them know that they were not to touch me. So, um, yeah, yeah, I so I did have some challenges that way. At the same time, I had people in school that you know when it came time to uh we you know ha- we had reading time I had other friends that we would go sit out in the hallway and they would read to me and That's so, so yeah sweet. it was you know so I mean I can't I can't say that I um there was some things about being cited in a in a in a you know mainstream education system you know, as the blind kid so I was recognized as a blind kid there was challenges because they didn't have um you know, now they've got teacher's aides in the classroom. They didn't have it then. I had an, uh, they called it an itinerant teacher that showed up once a year with my large print books and then they left. Um, so I never learned Braille. I couldn't do the physical activities like the phys ed mm. classes, like everybody else. Um, and I never, because I was in that setting, I never learned Braille at the time. You know, I learned that as an adult. Um, mm. And I huh. didn't get involved in like parasports, right? I was always competing in, I was in swimming and diving and synchro swimming and, and all of that, I was the, the blind kid competing against sighted people. So I never really got into the competitive levels. It seems like right. synchro swimming yeah. would have been a challenge. I I'm, I'm curious about um, phys ed class. You mentioned that, but I'm trying to imagine how you, how you could take part in, in a class like that. Like what was, do you ever have like, uh, or do you have any memories or moments where you um, remember like trying to adapt in a way that that uh, allowed you to take part? Or was there any moments where you just felt like totally excluded because there was just no way to take part? Yeah, whenever they played games that involved, you know, like basketball, uh, baseball, tennis, anything that volleyball, all of those things, anything that involved moving parts. Gymnastics, I, I was always quite good at um, hmm. because things weren't moving. Right. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember I remember uh, Mr. Bulow was my phys ed teacher, Hans Bulow. And um, we called his wife feet. Hans and feet. And, um, That's fucking awesome. Lovely guy. Lovely guy. And he really tried so hard to get me, uh, you know, in to be involved. And this was like junior high ages. And so we played um, soccer baseball, I think it's called. And so he rolled the ball to me. It was my turn to kick. And he rolled the ball to me, but he rolled it very slowly. He got down, he crouched down on the ground and he rolled it slowly to me so that I could not lose sight of it. And when it got to me, I kicked it really hard. And the poor guy was still crouched down on the ground and I kicked it so hard. It nailed him right in the crotch and he went down like a brick. He He hit the ground and he's like, you're not playing this game anymore. That was, that was it for, for phys ed ball game. I tried to help you, and look what you've done. <laughs> it was a total accident. I'm yeah. so sorry, Mr. Bulo, if you're listening. I still feel guilty. Um, yeah. So, but you know what? There was, there was also opportunities for me, because even though I wasn't playing those games, I also had opportunities to go and participate in, you know, in other activities. So, it's, you know, there's give and take. 
right? I mean, I, I, because of the fact that I couldn't see maps at the time and we didn't have tactile maps, I never took geography. So God bless being blind. There are moments in my life that I thank God I'm blind because geography is, which just would not be my thing. So yeah. (laughs) You, you were saying that you didn't learn Braille until you were an adult. Um, uh, what, like what, you know, you turn 10, you get this, you get this diagnosis of being legally blind. Um, what sorts of, of, I don't really know what the, what the word would be like, what sorts of therapies or, 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 um, or training, uh, do you need to go through at that age, at that time, at that diagnosis in order to like, in order to, to, exist and move move about in the world at a more at a more like accessible way um like did, like did, did they were you taught how to use like a uh a, um like a, a uh is it a seeing a eye cane yeah a yeah, cane? A cane? yeah. A cane? so, so it, depending on the level of sight loss so i didn't learn um we we would call that orientation orientational ability training and and we get that through at the time it was cniv uh, now it's through Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada um, provides rehabilitation processes for people who are blind or partially sighted. And, and so, yeah, I learned it later to use the cane. Um, when I was younger, again, keeping in mind this was, you know, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And um, <laughs> my my mother had a theory that as long as I could see a little bit, I should use the sight that I have and not rely on any um Anything that I, uh, you know, that could cause me to use my, lose the sight that I had. So she wanted me to focus on being able to see everything I could see and then only use adaptive equipment or devices when there was no other option. And, and you know, and in some ways I get it. She was trying to prolong my sight as long as possible, like mm. to, to keep it as long as possible. Now, in saying that, there was also... You know, that would be fantastic if I was the type of person that I, you know, would be very safe in the way I did things. Unfortunately for my family, I'm a little bit of a risk taker. And um, I may remember when I was like, I don't know, 17, I decided to get a paper route (laughs) and ride my bike to deliver the newspapers. And, (laughs) you know, I'm sure every time I left the house, my parents, you know, prayed to God that I was going to make it back alive um, because there I was legally blind riding my bike. And, um, you know, so, so I think that as I became older, I realized, you know, this really could be dangerous and maybe I should. That's next level dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That wasn't a tandem. That was an all out get on your bike and ride. And all I can see is like three feet in front of me and hope to God I didn't hit anything. Uh, I mean, it, do you, do you yeah. think though, that like that, that like being raised that way, it lends a hand to, to the, the kind of like the, like the life that you've lived and the accomplishments that you've had? Like, cause I, I mentioned earlier that there's like a list of accomplishments and they're, they're here in front of me and I'm reading things like, um, you know, skydiving, uh, repelling, you, you're a triathlete and you've done Ironmans. Like, like, do you think that, do you think that the way that your mother kind of, uh, pushed you in that way led to that sort of life or, 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 or do you think that you were, you were just always that kind of person? I think it's a combination. I I actually think it's the fact that I'm just rebellious and pigheaded and stubborn and, and that's my personality. At the same time, I think that 
it would not have gone very well had my mother held me back. Right. Like, right. Um, I, I'm sure my mother and I had several battles when I was younger because of my rebellious streak. Um, and, and I've said to her since I've become an adult, I've, you know, I'm still really sorry that I was such a shit when I was little. Um, and, you know, and I'm, and I'm sorry that I was so rebellious, but I'm not sorry that I am strong willed because it's that strength that has allowed me to get through having this particular um, limitation mm-hmm. and do the things I want to do and live the way I want to live yeah. if I didn't have that streak in me. So sorry if it hurt you. Um, but not sorry that I'm that way. And you really need like, I, I think of, I think of, um, some, some people in my life, um, who, uh, who are blind and, um, things that like, it really does. It, it's a, it's a massive service to, to not only other people who are (laughs) blind, um, but also to the community at large to, for people to go out and, and, put on display and show that all these limitations that you would associate with, um, you know, whatever disability in the, in your case, blindness, they're, you know, they're just, they, they just don't have to be true. They can be true if you maybe choose it to be. And uh-huh. obviously there are, there are some limitations obviously, but, but you know, there are lots of things that aren't. I, I look, yeah. I look to, um, a, a young woman that, um, at my yoga studios that, started coming to yoga years ago and, um, and you know, at, at first, you know, if we, we didn't, we, I didn't know anybody who was coming to the studio that was, that was fully blind. You know, mm-hmm. there was, there probably was people coming to the studio with partial blindness or what, you know, then I just don't know about it. But this is the first person that I knew of that was coming to the studio that was fully blind. Was that the young woman that came when I was teaching at Dartmouth? Yeah, yeah. And she came with, and she came with her parents. Yep. And she is she still practicing? Yeah, she is. And her parents and her her parents got holy like, shit got really really into it, especially her dad. Wow. Um, but she would come to the studio, and huh. and you're and I, I'm going oh, and immediately like the stigma jumps in, and you go like whoa, like so what like as a teacher, what do I do? Like how do I <laughs> how do I manage this person being in my class? Do I need to do something different? Do I need to like, you know, I'm, I'm asking myself those questions and, and, you know, you get to know this person and you start teaching them and they start coming to your class more regularly and you, and you really do realize like they've just, they've adapted in a way where they can just, they just do exactly the same thing as everybody else is doing mm. in their own way. And, uh-huh. and in a lot of ways, especially in this, in something like yoga, which is which people benefit so much from having this really intuitive sense of self and balance that, that I was going, the way that she is listening to me is on a different level than most people are listening to me. Mm. And, and therefore it shows up in her body in the way that she goes through that movement mm. that she's doing this and she's hearing me on a bit of a different, on a bit of a different level than most people are. And just, yeah. and just having her be that, that person that then shows everybody else that's in the studio, all of our teachers. I don't know why I had this notion in my head that somebody who is blind shouldn't be able to do this or shouldn't be able to do it as well. Do. Yeah. A right. lot of people do have that. I actually, it's funny you bring up yoga. My, my coach, so I, do, I have a triathlon coach and um, he actually teaches a blindfold yoga class. So the class is for um, sighted people to be blindfolded 
and do the class. So if you're blind, you don't, obviously you don't have to blindfold yourself if you're blind, but you can go if you're blind, you can go if you're sighted. But if you're sighted, he blindfolds you because mm-hmm. he says that with sight, you are distracted by, you know, am I posing better than the person next to me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's everybody else wearing? All of that kind of stuff. But if you're blindfolded, your focus is internal mm-hmm. and your focus is on your balance and your breathing and you're not being distracted. Yeah, we actually the- we actually had a, a friend of mine who, um, who uh, has worked with and I believe continues to work with CNIB and, um, and she's, uh, she's a good friend of mine. She actually took our yoga teacher training. Um, she's a teacher herself and she, <laughs> uh, we've organized, uh, we've organized several classes, um, the same way where we, where through the CNI, mm-hmm. a partnership with the CNIB where people come and, and, and take classes and put their blindfold on and, and have that experience. And they're really, really cool. Yeah. It's, it's very exciting. You know, I, I, I call sighted people retinal dependence because sighted people have this you have a disability i'm sorry it's the way it is i I feel bad for you you are constantly needing to see things right it is a limitation that you have in your lives that you have to be looking all the time that's a really fascinating way to put it Mm -hmm. you judge people on the way they look you everything happens with everything is sight right you look at you determine whether a car is nice because of well, how it looks as opposed to how it drives, right? And mm. and everything is sight focused. And I actually had this conversation one time with a, a, a minister when I worked for the government <laughs> of Alberta. And the minister said to me, you know, how many people with disabilities do we have working for us? And I said, not enough. And, um, and you know, he said, why? I said, well, you know, we're being fiscally responsible. And, and people think that adapting equipment and making things accessible costs money and so they don't want to spend the money and he said well how do you feel about that and i said you know i'm a taxpayer and the last time i checked my tax dollars were going to pay for the way that the government is run like it goes to salaries and to government stuff and i am appalled at the amount of the money hard-earned money that i have going to my taxes that pays for the power bill so you cited people can have the lights on all day. It's totally a waste of energy. <laughs> it's a waste of time. If you would stop looking at things and do things properly, the amount of money we could save, and yet we want to spend a thousand or two thousand dollars on adaptive equipment for someone with a disability, and we say we can't afford that. That is fascinating. Fascinating perspective. <laughs> yeah. The am... lights, your monitor, your monitor on your computer is a waste of time for me. I don't need a monitor. <laughs> That's true, right. yeah. <laughs> but you're so, still using you're still yeah, and you're still getting the use out of the out of the technology even without the monitor. It's like you're, exactly. you're totally right. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. so we often think of things as oh we need to make things accessible for people with disabilities. In fact, people with disabilities are making things accessible for mm. the able-bodied every day. A set of stairs is a way for an ambulatory person to get to a set of doors. That is an that is an accommodation for an ambulatory person. Yet we say the ramp that everybody can use is the accommodation for people in wheelchairs. Hmm. Right? And uh, my mind yeah. is blowing up. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I know. me too. Diane's uh, philosophy on accessibility and accommodation. I love it. <laughs> I love well, it. And, and the reason is because we've had accessibility conversations a lot and I and I and I always and it really does always blow my mind because there are these like little perspective shifts. Like it's not like what you just said isn't it's not it's not it's by no means crazy or groundbreaking but it's true and like the whole ramp, like that ramp thing you just said is uh-huh. uh like scrambling 
Yeah, because I've never my, thought about it that thoughts, way. And I've never thought about it that way. But of course, mm-hmm. and it's like, of course, you, everybody can go up the ramp, but not everybody can go up the stairs. You know, why do we, you know, God, just like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's a They're fascinating not, way to look at it. But stairs are more aesthetically pleasing, you guys. So we just have to build more stairs, you know, oh, it's just for, your right. for your Jesus eyes, for your eyes, for your eyes. Sharp corners are just really nice to look at. <laughs> Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. The Dose from CBC Podcasts is a new weekly health podcast hosted by Dr. Brian Goldman that cuts through the confusion as we live through a global pandemic. Each week, top experts answer your most pressing questions about the coronavirus and other health topics, providing the latest evidence in a way that's easy to understand. It's your guide to getting through this difficult time. You can subscribe to The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about um, your attitude and your perspective on life and how you've um, you've been a you are a go getter and you're very much somebody who who doesn't see um, your blindness as a limitation um, and <clears throat> and it seems like you've been that way since a, a very young age. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about like when you were, when you were like 10, 11, 12 years old and going to school and, and were the subject of, of bullying at times, um, was there ever a part of you that was like, not woe is me, but like was, was frustrated that you had this, um, extra layer or different challenge to, to deal with? Did you ever see it as that? Oh, yeah. As something that was more of a burden? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know what? It, it is right. There's. You know, you can't you can't go through life with any challenge and always look at it as a blessing. Right. Um, right. And at some point in time, I mean, even still, there are times I get extremely frustrated. Right. When there's something that I want to do and it's, you know, I, I've tried every way to get it done and I can't. And it's I get really frustrated. And then it's like, all right, I've done my time in. Like, when is this going to be done? Right? I I have those moments. How, how um, do you and, how do you yeah. overcome them? Like, how do you how do you manage that when you're when you're feeling that way? I I guess that's like the well now alcohol, for... but back then, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I'll tell you how I here's here's and this is going to sound silly. I look at this as, um, and and it's just the way I need to to rationalize it, right? And is that I was chosen by whatever you want to, whatever higher being or fate or just, you know, whatever, to have this particular disability because I have the ability to, to manage it. So, so here's, here's, I, I tell you a quick story and, and don't get all freaked out about it, but I, I have this thing where I, I, I picture God sitting at his desk and God is extremely handsome in my world, just so you know. Um, and and he's got he's got in in his hand he's got a index cards with different attributes, and he's got two babies that are about to be born. He's got Diane and he's got Jane. Okay, 
And so he flips over the first card and it says brown hair. So he drops that on Jane's pile and he flips over the next card and it says blue eyes and he drops that on Diane's pile and flips over the next card and card and, you know, a tall and curvaceous, <laughs> clearly Jane's pile. And, and he goes back and forth and back and forth and eventually flips over a card that says retinitis pigmentosa. And, you know, so he scratches his head and says, oh, crap, I got to give this to one of these two babies that are about to be born. So he drops it on Jane pile and he looks into Jane's future. Uh, he uses a crystal ball, of course, because I did say he was a man, right? So he looks into crystal ball. He needs help. He looks and <laughs> he sees Jane's future. And Jane is someone who is very dependent and who is struggling in dealing with this this issue and um, really maybe suffers from depression or whatever. And then he drops it on Diane's pile and he sees somebody who is, you know, maybe a little bit rebellious and strong-willed and, and um, who is independent and who is going to go do something at some point in time in her life that is going to empower a legislature to change the law or have somebody look at people with disabilities in a different way. So I, the moral to this crazy story for me is that that's what I look at as when I get frustrated, I say, wait a second, I was handpicked. I was chosen because I am going to do something in my lifetime that is going to be special because of this. And I, think so, that's, I think that's incredibly that's powerful. Um, having, having a narrative like, like that, whatever's at the root of it, whether it's a higher power, a higher being, a religious reason, a spiritual one, whatever it is, I, I think it's incredibly yeah. powerful having that story to get yourself through those tough times. And it, and it can be any, like those tough times could be anything. <clears throat> Um, but if you have a narrative, like that's the first time hearing you describe it that way. Um, it's so visual and visceral that it, it, I don't know, like the, the next time I know the next time that I come up against a challenge in my life where I feel like, you know, maybe I can't handle it. I, I'm going to look for the narrative like that and try to describe it to myself that way in a way that allows me or enables me to, to get through it. And I I just think that that's, incredibly important and um i'm looking at this in a in a new way now and i i know that the people listening to this podcast will will hear that story in the same way um diane i know that you you i i mean you know we, we've been talking about all the all the cool things that you've been able to do in spite of uh the fact that you can't see um uh, but you also do a lot of really awesome work uh, with with CNIB, and in in particular, you're the president of CNIB Guide Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I okay. So the three of us, Brian Taylor and myself, uh, we love a good boy. We are absolutely like just huge dog lovers, um, and I every time I I've come across a, a guide dog in my life. I know very well not to touch them, but I want not to, to like so bad. I know I want so it's, I want to so bad because because you see how good they are. They're such a good. They're such good boys. I just, I just and, need and clarification because you said that they got dropped out of the sky at the start of this podcast. <laughs> I, I always thought I always they thought you just, I, but I always thought you just put money in their heads at Canadian Tire and they came to life. <laughs> oh my god, dude! What a throwback! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I I I want to know the process. Like I want to know about. Like, okay, so I, I guess my first question is, can any dog be a seeing eye dog or, or, or no. a guide dog? Is seeing eye dog yeah. not uh, the cool so, way to say it? What's 
Seeing Eye Dog is actually a school. It's a fantastic school in um, in um, New Jersey, Morristown, New Jersey. And oh. it was actually the first official um, guide dog uh, school program that was uh, that, that in, in our history. It was it was um, brought into uh, being in 1929 and they started the program and oh. other schools have taken over and um, done it as well. And so, yeah, so they're there. They're, they're still doing their thing in, in New Jersey. But that is a trademark, um, a trademark name. Okay. Oh, interesting! Um, it's like uh, yeah. Kleenex. I didn't didn't realize. Yeah, exactly. It's like tissue and Kleenex, and you know all that. Yeah, <laughs> same same deal. Um, but so yeah, so the, people say dog guide or guide dog. Uh, either depending on the the area that you're in, guide. We say CNIB guide dog is the name of our school, so we call them guide dogs. Um, mm-hmm. So the generic would be guide dog. So no, not any dog can can be a guide dog. Um, there is not, I would say a specific breed that, 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 you know, I, I mean, okay. You have to rule out Shih Tzus. Okay. You cannot have a (laughs) guide dog. The the dog has to be large enough to be able to, um, push you in one direction or the other, you know, push you out of the way in danger, that kind of, so you can't use a tiny dog. It's not, and, and I have to be able to shut up. Well. Exactly. Yeah. Can, can um, they be too big? Like, like could a could a Great Dane be a, be a guide dog? You know, if you had somebody who was seven feet tall, and I, <laughs> I've actually, um, I've actually been at a guide dog school with someone who was six foot nine, and um, he had to have a very tall dog. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, you have to think of size and where they're going, right? I mean, how would you get a Great Dane mm-hmm. underneath the seat in front of you in an airplane? Right. You know, <laughs> right. so right. the dog has to be matched to the person's abilities. Um, so, I, I mean, I actually do know somebody that, that um, trained their own dog and they used a, a St. Bernard. Um, oh, wow. Which I thought was not necessarily, and that the dog was doing a great job in guiding. They just, you couldn't, you had trouble getting on a bus. You know? It's not the most accessible guide dog, it's, right? Yeah, sure. it's just not the yeah. most useful in that sense, right? So mm. typically you will see nowadays, they used to use, seeing I use, uh, started with shepherds. Um, shepherds make absolutely phenomenal guide dogs. Um, they're like working with little soldiers. They're fantastic. Um, however, they're not the most social. I, I'm generalizing, right? Mm-hmm. You can have some right. very social, but um, they, in fact, uh, the school I used to go to, Litter Dogs in Michigan, they started out with Shepherds, Rottweilers, and Dobermans. Oh, Dobermans. Um, and, but of course, fear from the public of those particular mm. breeds, mm-hmm. they, they chose to move on to Shepherds, Labs, and Golden Retrievers. So mm. um, CNIB Guide Dogs uses Labs and Golden Retrievers and crosses of those two breeds uh, because of their... Um, well, for many reasons. First of all, those two breeds happen to be the the, the breeds that just absolutely love to work, right? right. Like anything for their handler, I, their whole life is focused on what can we do to make this person happy, right? And safe. Such so, good boys. So they are fantastic. I am a golden retriever girl. I love golden retrievers. Um, they match my hair color. I can accessorize. It's fantastic. See, I was going to yeah. say, that, um, how do you, well, how do you have, because I was really curious, you know, I find that all dogs look like their owners or resemble them in some way. 
So how do you dude? You think Big B resembles me in any way dude, whatsoever? Yeah, you, dude, you look like Steve Buscemi. <laughs> okay. I, oh, I was actually wondering if it was your claws that were ticking on the ground when, it, when we were that, earlier yeah, on the no, that's my yeah, that's my guy. That's Big B. Yeah, he's a big um, French mastiff. He looks. He's a big dope. I guess you know he looks as dumb as I do. So I guess yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> Um, so CMIB guide dogs, actually, we, we use those two breeds on the crosses because of their work desires, um, and their personality and their, you know, they're just the type of dog that can be out in public and, um, can really, you know, they can have a a child run across, you know, the Walmart parking lot and jump on their heads and they're just going to wag their tails. Right. Mm -hmm. They're just, that's the kind of typical, and I'm talking typical, right. Mm -hmm. Um, so we we have a breeder that specially breeds these dogs um, for the right temperament, health wise. You know, they get we, they have to have the right genetics uh, to make sure they're not going to end up with hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, heart conditions, cataracts, um, epilepsy, anxiety disorders. Like we, there's a genetic link to all of those things, and so they breed them to try and breed that out of the system. And we breed for size as well. You know, my, I have a golden retriever and she's 53 pounds because I travel a lot and I need a dog that can fit under the seat in front of me. So Mm -hmm. a a hundred pound um, Alsatian would not work well for me. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, So, um, and, and I'm, I'm only five foot one. So, you know, giving me a gigantic dog would just, you know, it just wouldn't work. Um, So we get the dogs that the breeder that we use is in Australia and when the dogs are eight weeks old, she um, ships them to us. We, we have them, Air Canada is our uh, shipper. They, they bring the dogs to us. And we then um, provide these dogs out to what we call puppy raisers, which are foster families. And the foster family's job is to keep that dog till they're a year to 15 months old. And their whole purpose is to care for it, love it, socialize it, take it places, keep, you know, make sure that its obedience is, is, um, is up to snuff. Um, they do all sorts of activities <laughs> where they put the dog around other animals. Um, we have puppy raising supervisors that visit them and teach them how to train the dogs for mm. all these different things. The puppy raisers do not train the dogs for guiding. That's not their job. Their job is to to get these dogs ready. And is this a volunteer service? It is like a the, volunteer. The, the puppy raisers? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. Aww. We pay for everything for the dog. We pay for all their medical food and all that kind right. of thing. Um, so the bonus is the volunteer gets a dog for a year that is so well-trained because they're working with it and they're getting like one-on-one training from their puppy raising supervisor and this dog is like genetically predisposed to be a fantastic dog. Yeah. And uh, the the downside, of course, is that when they're a year to fifteen months old, you gotta go. You gotta say goodbye. Right. Yeah. Are there right. like over your baby? Are yeah. there dogs like so? If you if you need to, if you're looking for access to a, a guide dog, um, mm-hmm. how do you how do you get one? Um. You. You give me money. No, I'm kidding. It's, there's no cost. <laughs> there is no cost. CNIB guide dogs. We believe that financial barriers should never stop someone having for having access to a guide dog. So there's no cost or anything. Okay, I just wanted to make if sure person, I could get one. Again, <laughs> if you're blind or partially sighted, 
Um, and if you become a client of CNIV and you can provide medical documentation showing that your sight loss is affecting your ability to function, then you can get a guide dog. Do they do? Mm. Do they just like? Yeah. How do they pair you with them though? Do they just you know give oh, you what, the next technical. one that's available or? No, like... no, no, no. So just like people, dogs have personalities and they have things that they're better at, and and it's like it's like. Um, it's like somebody you have a job opening, right? And then you look for the right person to fit that job. So we have um, we have a list of people that are looking to be matched with a guide dog, and we have the information about their height, their strength, their weight, any other disabilities or conditions that might affect their ability to be uh, to to walk or you know work with the dog, their, their strength, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what they look have, like, like you do a matching like profile. Yeah, you get it. Exactly. <laughs> their hair is got to be, yeah. Um, there's, do they live in the city or the country? Do they work in an office or do they work in a factory? Do they oh, have wow. children? Do they have other pets? Mm-hmm. Do they have a yard? Do they live in an apartment? Are they going to have to be traveling and need to get on a plane all the time? Oh, Are wow. they on city transit? Um, there's, there's so many different pieces to it. And so then our guide dog mobility instructors, it's our GDMI as we call them, they train the dogs. All the dogs get trained basically the same, right? They get trained to stop at a curb, find the door, find the steps, you know, um, take that person from danger. They get traffic checks. They actually tell the dog to go forward when a car is coming and the dog has to learn to not move when, and it's, it's, it's actually called intelligent disobedience. Um, it's the dog gets to decide when to disobey based on an intelligent decision. Uh-huh. And it's it's what separates a guide dog from a pet. Because if you tr- if you have a dog that's very obedient, um, the dog will do whatever you tell it to do. A guide dog has to determine when that when to obey and when to disobey. So if I come mm. to the curb and I say forward and there's a car coming, my dog has to back up or sit down or just not move and to let me know it is not safe to do what yeah, you're there, telling me. There's a, there's a wild video on the internet that I saw a couple of years back and it was of CCTV footage of uh, someone who was blind with their guide dog on a sidewalk and behind them there was a car accident or a car lost control and ramped up onto the sidewalk and was like careening towards this person and and their dog, uh-huh. and the dog's reaction and and it's it's like movement completely saved this person's life and it was like uh-huh. uh, it was such a, a wild thing to see in action you know yeah. um, it's it's just so so like so fascinating so what what is the what is the turnaround time? Say, say someone comes in today and, and fi- like, you know, submits an application for, for a guide dog. How, how long, like, is there a backlog? Like how long does it usually take for someone to get matched up it, with their perfect it, little pet? It literally depends on the, the availability of what dogs we have mm. and what types of people. So if I come into the program and I've got an average speed and I've got an office dog and, Um, I, you know, I'm an, just any dog will do kind of thing, right? I don't say I prefer golden retrievers. I don't care if it's a male or a female. I don't care about, I don't have any other animals or any other, you know, children at home. So I don't have to worry about that. And, you know, that's a person who's going to be easily matched, right? Um, if you're me and keep in mind, I worked for this organization, (laughs) it took Mm -hmm. them a year 
from the time that I put in my application to the time that I got matched with the dog. Actually, it was more than a year because I need a dog that can work in my neighborhood without sidewalks and lots of curves and um, and then can get on a plane and fly with me to Geneva and work the city streets of Geneva and then get on a plane and go to England and deal with traffic on the other side of the road and then come back home and get in, you know, a canoe and go paddling with me and my husband go fishing. So So you need a cultured dog. I need a dog (laughs) that nothing's going to shake that dog, right? Right. A dog with a lot of confidence, a lot of flexibility and adaptability in in the way that, that she functions, right? So I could not have a skittish dog or a, you know, mm. a dog that couldn't handle new and, and, you know, I have a dog that doesn't like routine. If it's routine, she's bored out of her head, right? Mm-hmm. She wants to be constantly on an adventure, right? So, so that's what I need. So it took longer. Plus I was very picky about, um, I really wanted a golden retriever. And actually I, I said I would be fine with a yellow lab, but I did not want a black dog. And, and there was a good reason. My, my boss always laughs and says that's because he, I'm the only person he knows that will accessorize my dog. Um, but it's because I do a lot of um, I do a lot of work in the public. And so there's a lot of pictures that get taken. Nobody cares if I'm in the picture, but they always want a picture of my dog. And black dogs don't show up as well in photographs. No. So that's so you one want reason dog to show up. Yeah. Right? I want my dog's face to be seen. I want you know she's going to be in pictures. You know, what but if on top? <laughs> but that's not the main. That's one of the reasons. But the main reason is I work because I work in international affairs as well as guide dogs. I work with a lot of people from other countries, and black dogs seem to um, yeah have a negative connotation in some other countries, some other cultures. Do so my yellow right. dog is is less fearful. Do you mm-hmm. are are you sure your dog is not black? I have checked. I did not believe. No, I'm kidding. I do know. <laughs> I did ask what color she was when they handed her to me. Every, everybody's been told to just say yeah, yeah, yellow. Yeah, yellow. Just, just tell her to tell her to uh, golden. Is, I know, right? Is there anywhere that um, that guide dogs aren't allowed to go? Oh yeah, there's very very few places they're not allowed to go into areas that are restricted to the public. Okay. So operating oh. rooms and in hospitals, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, certain certain areas, um, but if the public is allowed, the dog is allowed. Okay. Period. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm what what are like what are some benefits? Obviously, there's the benefit of like, you know, um, guiding a, a blind person from A to B and and giving them more ease in in which they like move around the world. But like, what are some other benefits that come with? With owning a guide dog versus not so owning a guide dog outside outside of that, the obvious. So not everybody is suited to have a guide dog. I mean, those of us that are dog lovers sit back and go, if you were blind, why in God's name wouldn't you have a guide dog, right? But there are benefits and drawbacks to guide dogs. So first of all, if you're the type of person that needs to know everything around you, you want to know how many poles there are between you and your front door down the street, you want to know all of your surroundings. A dog is not for you. You would need a cane because a cane is an object finder and a dog Mm. is an object avoider. Right. So if you're the type of person that wants to find everything, know your environment, the cane is the thing that's probably better for you. And then you can find all your, if you don't care what's between point A and point B, just that you get there safely and as quickly as possible, then the dog is more something that would 
suit you. Is that kind of um, a matter of trust, like like being wanting to trust yourself versus putting your trust yes, in an, there's, an there's external? Yes, there's control issues there. Absolutely. If you if you want to be more in control, when you have a guide dog, it's absolutely about trust. If you can't trust your dog, don't bother. Right. right. You have mm-hmm. to because your dog is making decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. And the dog's making decisions for your safety. So the other the other benefit of canes over guide dogs is if I want to go on vacation somewhere where I can't take my dog, say to Africa, right? And you know, with a cane, a cane can go with me. A cane can go anywhere with me. A cane can be stuck right. up in the closet, and I don't have to worry about it for three weeks. A dog you have to feed mm. and water and take out to the bathroom and pick up after it and groom it and love it and train it, and mm. you can't just ignore it. Right. Right. So, you you know, if you're not a dog lover, again, maybe not the best thing. From my perspective, the moment I touched the harness with my first guide dog, I would have never gone back to a king. That first walk that I took with my Mm. guide dog transformed me from um, a cane user to a dog user. Because Mm. when I had, I know it's probably hard, (laughs) it's hard to believe now, but when I used my cane, I had a low self-esteem. I was lacking in self-confidence. I felt like I wanted to hide all the time because everybody looked at me and automatically recognized that I was a blind person and focused on she's blind. And, you know, do we need to help her? What can, you know, she can't do this, she can't do that. As soon as I started walking around with a dog, nobody gave a shit that I couldn't see. They all knew I couldn't see, mm. but the focus was mm. look at a beautiful dog. Look what that mm. blind and look what that dog is doing. Look what that dog is doing to help that blind girl and what she can do. So the focus went from what I can't do to what I could do. And it totally mm. changed my ability to function. And I started getting my self-esteem and I started getting mm-hmm. my self-confidence. And so I always I always say that my dog saved me, um, possibly from myself, and allowed me to become the person that I wanted to be. And it's because that's, of the that's dog. That's very sweet. I, I so coming back to this this like deep deep desire to want to to pet and kiss and squeeze every guide dog I ever see. Again, knowing that that is not the thing to do uh, because which they I, are working, I, and when they are working, you need to not, you need to not, you need to let them do their fucking job because it's which very is so disappointing you that you keep doing it. It's frustrating that you keep running up to them and petting them and hugging I, them and kissing I, them. I, no, no, I don't. That I don't was do that. You. No, I, no, I swear, I swear, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. Uh, but you'll never really know. <laughs> um, uh, but I, what I do want to know is that, like, you know, when when Diane, when you get home with with your dog and and you're not out on the street and and she's not wearing her like um you know i'm a cnib Uh guide dog don't touch me um do you like are you able to like give that dog so much love and treats and pets and and squeezes yeah okay i mean you know limited treats because Sure. You know, what goes in comes out, stay right? healthy. Yeah, so, that's right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to give the dog anything that they're not supposed to eat. They're on a very strict diet because of, you know, yeah. you got to make sure that they're going into public places. You don't want to have an accident somewhere. So uh, when you feed them, when you water them, when you, you know, all of that is scheduled. However, oh, interesting. Uh, the minute that harness comes off, she is running around, chasing her toys. She's a dog and she's a lovable, adorable dog. Um, 
And, and she, you know, my husband will take her outside and play with her outside and they run together around the backyard and roll around and wrestle and whatever. She's just like any other. However, there's a limit because of course she has to be more bonded to me than anybody else in the house because she works for me. So, right. Of course. This might, yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a bit of a selfish question and anyone who doesn't own a dog probably won't give a fuck, but what do you feed? What do you feed, uh, you know, such a like high caliber and important like working dog. What what's the what is the what's like the the, the optimal diet for your dog? Well, <laughs> if you ask a veterinarian, the answer is every <laughs> dog is different. Um, so our uh, CNIB guide dogs has uh, a relationship, a partnership with Royal Canin, which is a high quality food, mm-hmm. and so we, we do tend to feed our dogs Royal Canin. Um, my dog, because of some uh, allergies and due to a skin issue, uh, allergy with skin issues, she um, has a hypoallergenic food that I provide her. It is not cheap; mm-hmm. it's like two hundred dollars a bag. Um, and but she, but we give them whatever food is best for the, you know, the the condition or the, you know, they get puppy food when they're younger, they get adult food when they get older, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. but we don't just go to the grocery store and pick out whatever happens to be on sale that day. And they right, never sure get is, fed sure. from the table ever, ever, ever. Yeah. yeah if I go into a, a restaurant there, um, and yeah, it's not good. Speaking of um, speaking of like the cost of buying, like, for example, an expensive bag of dog food, um, is there financial support or subsidies that the government government provides for um, for guide dogs? Depending on which province you're in and depending on um, what. So if you're on (laughs) if you're in Ontario and you're on ODSP, the Ontario Disability um, Program. Um, they do provide you an, an extra amount of money to pay for, um, you know, dog supplies, veterinary bills, and that kind of stuff. Um, CNIV guide dogs. Again, we 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 one of our principles, one of our philosophies is that we believe that nobody should have financial barriers to stopping them to their independence and freedom. So, our program is set up in such a way that when you graduate with one of our dogs. Um, we pay for the veterinary bills and dog food for the working life of that dog. So we pay for all of that right up until the dog retires. And even after the dog retires, we pay for veterinary costs um, right up for the rest of that dog's life. And the the, Mm. um, handler pays for the, if they choose to keep the dog, they'll, they'll um, pay for the food. But uh, Mm. for like the, until they're 11 or until they retire, we cover all of that. And that's all Amazing. through donations. So um, cnib.ca slash guide dogs if you'd like to donate. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, uh, Diane, this, is, uh, this has been really sweet. Um, and I, we, we're coming to time here. But before we wrap it up, there's one question that we, we typically like to ask most of our guests. And uh, I'd like to kind of throw it at you now. Um, out, of, out of your entire experience of living a life uh, uh, without sight, uh, what would you say is the biggest thing that that being blind has taken away from you? Wow. Taken away from me. I don't, there's so many things that it's given me. Um, you know, there is, well, that's why, that's my second question, which is what is, has it given you, but, but I, but go for it. it take, you know, so that, so the taking away part, I, <laughs> it's not really taken away anything um, that I, you know, specifically, I think the big thing for me, 
And probably the one thing that I find difficult about not being able to see is that my daughter is now 26 years old and I have never seen her face. Mm. You know, I've touched her face and, you know, but I can't see her. And probably that's the only thing that, you know, when, when she was Mm. in her school concerts and I had to have people describe it to me, um, that's probably the only thing that really has been the thing that has affected me not being able to see. Mm. So, yeah. What, what would you say then is the biggest thing that uh, blindness has given you? Um, I think that because of my personality, blindness has given me the ability to challenge myself in so, so many ways. Things that, I mean, I have challenged myself in ways I think that if I could see, I probably, you know, would not have done a lot of the things that I did. But I always feel now that I need to prove not to other people, but to myself that I can do things. So because of that, it's given me this great desire to challenge myself. You know, I had this conversation with somebody uh, not too long ago who, because there's this whole philosophy, it's, it's, you know, around, you know, you have a disability, therefore you become an inspiration for everybody. And I, and I said, you know, I'm not an Mm. inspiration because I have a disability. Um, Mm -hmm. I could be an inspiration because I've done an Ironman, which the average person has not done. Right. It's, it's not being blind that does it. It's maybe being blind on top of that, but there's, there's, you know, it's given me the ability to say I can do something and let's see, let's see how far I can take my life despite this. Right. It's that challenge. Mm. That's what it's given me. Well, this has been uh, a real treat to to get to sit down and and talk to you about your life and about your accomplishments and about uh, about all the things that I've been dying to know about about guide dogs. Um, uh, where <laughs> that you will again, not I, touch the next time you see it. Yeah. That which I promise I will not. I promise <laughs> I will not. As cute uh, as they look. Where can people? Where can people um, see the work that you're up to or, or find more information on, on CN, CNIB guide dogs? Um, CNIB.ca. Um, if you go there, it's got links to guide dog program. It's got links to all of the other programs, CNIB <laughs> foundation, you know, due to COVID-19, of course, like everybody else, we've been um, having to do things from home. So we've got a wide range now of online virtual programs, we have over 300 programs that we run uh, virtually right now. So I would suggest people go to cnib.ca. Um, there is a donate button. Please use it. Mm-hmm. Um, we could really use the the assistance with that. And because um, we're not we're not getting government funding for these dogs. Uh, this is mm-hmm. all through charity. And uh, so, yeah, we, we appreciate any help that anybody can give. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day today. Uh, it was it was really a treat. Thank you so much. This is fun. Uh, and thank you all so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will be back next week as we always are with another wonderful conversation. Um, and after you've gone to the CNIB website and you've hit that donate button, uh, why not come back over to Apple podcasts and leave us a rating and a review? Uh, cause it would mean the world to us. And you can also go to Spotify and follow the podcast there. So you can hear conversations like this one and many more, uh, to learn lots about the human experience. Um, and, uh, if you want to support us even further than that, you can go to patreon.com slash sick boy, patreon.com slash sick boy. We have an amazing community of contributors over there. Um, and, uh, I, I really do want to emphasize 
this is not just a handful of people that give us money each month. These are people that we know, that we communicate with, that we have fun with. We have hangouts with them every week. We give uh, special access to online live shows and a lot of cool things. Um, it really, truly is a community. So patreon.com slash sickboy is where you can go if you feel like you want to uh, to join us in any of that and also, um, uh, as, a, as a footnote, help us financially. And thanks, as always, to Donovan, the CPAP Morgan, for the amazing sound design on this show. Uh, Donovan, this wouldn't be possible without you. We love you very much. Um, and thanks for making it sound like there is money going into the head of a little guide dog statue at the front of a Canadian tire. But as that money goes in, a magical event occurs where that dog comes to life and uh, goes to live Starts with a person. Guiding me through the aisles of Canadian tire. Wow, wow, <laughs> wow. That, wow what, a, what, a, what, a, what an audio project you have just been given, Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And uh, thanks, to, uh, thanks to our measly intern, Lauren, and, uh, and our manager, Jeff. Um, thanks, everybody. This is really, it's really great that you're all a part of this team. <laughs> that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy, and this is Support. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.